Hello, and welcome to the inaugural podcast episode of SMET Network. SMET Network brings together scholars from two leading higher education institutions in urban tourism studies, University of Westminster and Paris 1 Panthéon-Sorbonne. Established in 2019, it encourages collaborations across research, teaching and outreach, and taps into the potential a dialogue between metropolises affords. We are looking at commonalities and differences seen in world tourism cities in an attempt to understand the development and management practices, as well as help implement innovations in sustainable metropolitan tourism. My name is Maya Jovic, and I am a senior lecturer in tourism and architecture at the University of Westminster's School of Architecture and Cities. My research and teaching interests sit at the intersection of architecture and tourism, and I'm focusing on shaping the new narratives after a conflict and, in general, critical destinations development. While I'm a reluctant architect and reluctantly active in practice, in my research, I gravitate towards layered topics of negotiating contested heritage, post-conflict tensions, branding, national identity and belonging. And my name is Adam Eldridge and I'm a senior lecturer in sociology at the University of Westminster. My research interests are at the intersection of urban sociology, tourism studies and cultural studies and I primarily conduct research on cities at night. I have in the past published on hen parties, Christmas in London with my Westminster colleague Ilaria Padalepore, and most recently co-edited a collection with Andrew Smith, also from Westminster, titled Tourism at Night. We are very happy to be joined today by two authorities in the field of urban tourism who will be sharing their views of strengths and challenges of tourism in a metropolitan context. Maria Gravari Barbas is a professor at the Paris 1 Pantheon Sorbonne and director of the AREST, a multidisciplinary research team dedicated to tourism studies, focusing on cultural heritage development and urban tourism evolutions. Maria is also the director of the UNESCO Chair, Tourism Culture Development of Paris 1 Sorbonne University and the coordinator of the UNESCO University Twinning, a networking program of the same name. Maria is an architect, an urban planner and an invited professor to a number of universities in Europe, the States and Latin America. She is an author of several books and papers related to tourism, culture and heritage. These include seminal readings on world heritage, architecture and urban spaces, tourism, identity and gentrification in contemporary metropolises. Robert Maitland is Emeritus Professor of City Tourism at the University of Westminster in London, where he founded the Centre for Tourism Research. His work focuses on how tourism shapes cities and cities shape tourism. As an urban economist and planner, his particular interests are the tourist experience of cities, especially world cities, capitals and heritage cities, with an emphasis on tourism and everyday life. Robert has advised government and tourism organizations, and his many publications are considered pioneering, particularly with their focus on world tourism cities, national capital perspectives, and global change. If I could ask you, Robert, to what extent, if at all, do you think metropolitan tourism differs to urban tourism? 
Um, that's an interesting question, Adam, and it's a really good place to start. Uh, and we, we could spend uh, a long time on detailed definitional discussion of exactly what we mean by urban, exactly what we mean by metropolitan and so on. But I think if we're looking at two metropolitan cities like London uh, and Paris, then there are a number of things that stand out which means that whilst they share a lot of characteristics with other cities, with urban tourism more generally, um, they are distinct. And a lot of that is to do with the way that they are connected to global circuits of money, of power, of culture, of education, and the fact that they're large, I mean, size matters here, and they're large polycentric cities. And if you put those two things together, the global connections and the size, then that starts to explain where there is a difference to other cities. So, for example, um, the international service class um, plays a big role in those cities, both as, a, if you like, as a diaspora, people who are moving around the world in their careers. Sometimes they're based in New York, sometimes London, sometimes Paris, Berlin, wherever. And also through business tourism, certainly pre-pandemic, where that uh, professional international service class was moving around the world and creating a level of business tourism that you get in metropolises, but not in uh, smaller cities. You can then think about the characteristics of the resident population of metropolises, far more international uh, than most other cities. Um, in London, for example, 35% of the population are foreign-born in Scotland, which I realise is a country, not a city, but just by way of contrast, 5% uh, of the Scottish population is foreign-born. And so there are implications there for visiting friends and relations. A very international uh, population generates um, a lot of visits from friends and relations. There is the international student community that you find in metropolises like London uh, and Paris, very, very large numbers, so about 125,000 international students, I think, in, in London. And all of that is on top of the heritage, the cultural attributes, the architecture, uh, the attractions that the metropolis has. So. I think it has something different, something special compared to other cities. It shares some characteristics, but has some uh, elements which are which are different, it seems to me. Maria, can I come in and ask you then, do you think it makes sense to speak of metropolitan tourism as a distinct type of tourism? Yes, I think so, and I totally agree with uh, Robert. Uh, metropolitan tourism is urban tourism. However, urban tourism is not always metropolitan. Not every city is a tourist city, but we can say that all metropolises, by their size, 
the concentration and diversity of activities, the existence also of major international gates, such as ports, airports, have a gradient of touristicity. Some metropolises are international tourist destinations, and this is, of course, the case of Paris, London, or New York. But most others, without being international tourist destinations, have a degree of uh, tourism thanks to uh, their nodal situation in a regional or national context and the existence of businesses, cultural, commercial, entertainment services. Robert spoke uh, very well about all this. It's very hard, in fact, to imagine metropolises with not any degree of touristicity. And um, again, scale is, of course, very, very important. Uh, size matters, as uh, it was said before. Uh, a metropolis consists of central urban places, often characterized by monumentality, bourgeois architecture, sophisticated commercial offer, but also um, it is also characterized by ordinary, everyday residential places that sometimes um, experience phenomena of decline or in the opposite of gentrification. And these everyday areas often experienced in the last years, important touristification, mainly due to uh, the dissemination of tourism rental platforms such as uh, Airbnb. And um, of course, in metropolises, we find other um, touristically marginal areas that are becoming in the last years tourism destinations. And I think it's very, very important to speak not only about metropolises, but also about metropolization and the impact of metropolization on, uh, on tourism. This is, uh, for example, uh, speaking about this transformation, this is the, uh, the case for former port or industrial uh, areas. Um, metropolitan uh, tourism destination offers, due to its scale, but also to its diversity, the possibility of visiting vaster areas, but also the possibility to visit uh, very, uh, very diverse uh, areas. It is possible to visit the same day. And well, let's take here the example of Paris, the hyper-touristified central area of the uh, Rue de Rivoli uh, around Le Louvre, the bourgeois areas around the uh, Tour Eiffel, the more ordinary, let's say, residential areas of the 10th or the 11th uh, district, the former um, industrial areas in the northern uh, suburbs, or to take even a boat ride in a very preserved natural environment in a branch of the Marne uh, River, or even to participate to um, a rave party in a disused in industrial uh, plant. All this is possible quasi simultaneously in the same metropolis. And because this is possible, the typology of people who visit and their motivations are also diverse and uh, dynamic and evolutive. Visitors come to metropolises and come again because metropolises are a repeater's uh, destination, uh, because they offer the possibility to visit repeaters, to visit every time a different uh, facet of the same city. So this diversity does not exist in small or medium-sized cities. So yes, I believe that metropolitan tourism is a specific kind of urban tourism. Maria, following on from this and the transformations both in a spatial as well as social sense, 
you have written on new cultures of urban tourism. So could we ask you to perhaps elaborate on these new cultures and in particular, what is significant about Paris and London and their preparedness for these new cultures? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I qualify this this new um, culture of urban tourism as a kind of velvet revolution of tourism. Uh, a velvet revolution that started uh, at the end of the 20th century due mainly to, um, first of all, the desires and the expectations of mature uh, tourists disposing an important tourism capital. Uh, thanks to their numerous travels, their capacity to adapt, and to feel at home in the different uh, contexts they visit. Um, uh, so Parisians, when they travel abroad, they can feel much uh, easier at home in different cities such as London, and I guess vice versa, uh, Londoners to, to Paris. The other reason of this velvet revolution is the reactivity of the local tourism systems, which in fact very rapidly adapted themselves to um, these new tourist demands. In the, in the last years, last decades, uh, was developed a plethora of new tourism offers, which um, invite visitors to practice the city in a much more segmented, differentiated and plural uh, ways than we would say the usual tourist visits of the uh, main tourism sites. So uh, I think it is this conjunction between uh, demand and supply evolutions, recent evolutions, that contributed to uh, open up, to expand, to diversify uh, the uh, tourist destination. So diversify what today Paris or London or other metropolises offer as tourist uh, sites. And in this um, more or less beginning of the 21st century, uh, tourist tourist visits uh, at places formerly considered as unhospitable, dirty or dangerous, such as um, former industrial sites, urban ruins, urban undergrounds, uh, metropolitan suburbs, uh, favelas, or other places that we can uh, qualify as ordinary everyday places tend to become uh, touristic places. Uh, and this also uh, comes a lot, I think, from the, tourist, uh, from the tourists themselves. Uh, the tourist gaze participates a lot to the uh, aestheticization and also to the heritageization of ordinary places. We can see that sometimes in difficult or um, traumatic places, it even contributes to, uh, to change a kind of geographical stigma, to transform them into places of play, of excitement, of aesthetic delectation, and uh, sometimes uh, also of affective attachment. This quite recent change, this revolution of tourism, brought, in fact, new cultures of, uh, of urban um, tourism lifestyles which uh, could be eventually summarized around the triptych of first, new attitudes of tourists, uh, tourists that become uh, more players, more ironic, more conscious and reflective, uh, what we use to qualify as uh, post-tourism. Second, uh, new urban territories of tourism. And uh, third, new players, in fact, new players such as uh, association or, uh, or civil society, 
So players who are not normally tourist players and who in fact participate now to uh, the uh, tourist visits that are uh, in fact um, experienced by the new uh, tourists. What I must say here also is that uh, um, this new tourism uh, can be um, also very disruptive. Um, disruption, of course, is due to innovations, but uh, it often results in conflicts. In uh, several tourism cities, the uh, incursion of new players, such as, for example, uh, the tourism retinal platforms, and also this disintermediation I spoke before, the fact that tourists do not need anymore to pass from classic traditional tourist uh, play, uh, players, stakeholders, but they can uh, deal uh, directly with civil society or NGOs or associations. This disintermediation between tourists and the tourist product they uh, are supposed to consume sometimes exacerbates tourism conflicts and tensions. And uh, um, this uh, is also to uh, relate to the blurring of limits between tourists and everyday places, which is much more visible in metropolises than in other uh, medium and small scale cities. So this kind of blurring exposes uh, to tourism places, neighborhoods, which are particularly vulnerable sometimes. Because in fact, not all tourist cities have the tourist paths of established tourist metropolises, such as uh, Paris or London, which in fact integrate better tourism, integrate better or more easily tourism nuisances to um, their local governance tools. So yeah, keep on mind the fact that those new cultures of urban tourism are absolutely interesting they open up totally new areas in metropolises, but they can also very disruptive and they can also uh, result in conflict. Robert, picking up on what Maria has been discussing, could you say anything further about conviviality and off the beaten track tourism of which you've written quite extensively about? I became interested in um, the way in which at least some tourists want to get off the beaten track and experience the everyday a long time ago. So, you know, 20, 25 years ago, I suppose, I started thinking um, uh, about this. And in a way we have to uh, slightly backtrack here to remind ourselves that there are so many uh, different kinds of, quote, tourists in, in metropolitan cities. And indeed, that's one of the ways in which they're different um, to other cities. So there are still in London and Paris people who want to come along to see the sites and ensure that they can say, yes, I've seen the Eiffel Tower or Big Ben or I've gone to the Louvre or I've gone to the British Museum or what have you. There are, there are that, there is, there are people whose main motivation um, is to do that, who, whose uh, activities are around that. But there are also uh, many other tourists in, in metropolitan uh, cities, including people who 
are very experienced urbanists, very experienced travellers, often people who have been to the city before, often people who've been to the city more than once, and quite a lot of people who are uh, what I've called connected tourists, that is people who are very familiar with the city because of their frequency of their visits, which might be for business, it might be for visiting friends and relations, or because they've previously lived there, they're working for an, in an international environment and been on assignment to London or Paris for a while, or because they studied there. So a whole range of ways in which people uh, who are visitors to the city nonetheless feel themselves to be connected. They don't actually particularly think of themselves as tourists. That's one of the interesting things that's uh, come out of, uh, for me, interviewing uh, tourists. They are tourists within the w, uh, WNTO uh, definition, but they're not actually tourists as they see themselves. They don't think of themselves in, in that, kind of, that kind of way. So you have this big variety uh, of visitors uh, in the metropolis. And in many ways, they share urban preferences with many of the people who are resident in the metropolis, who are also, uh, it, it, as I mentioned earlier, to a considerable extent, part of the international service class, they're mobile, um, they are frequent travellers. And so what seems to be the case is that at least some visitors who are frequent visitors to a particular city and to cities in general are looking to experience and enjoy what they invariably describe in interviews as the real city, uh, some sense of being in a place which is not designed for tourists. And I think that's what is meant by the real city. They're looking for a, a place that hasn't been commodified for uh, tourists. And that means that they become interested in areas which are often off the beaten track to some extent, but which are also um, areas that are enjoyed by people like them who are resident in the city. So one of the things that some visitors are looking for is to get away from conventional tourist attractions and actually away from conventional tourists in that sense. And what they want to do is to go to other places which are slightly less well known as tourism destinations and to mix and mingle with people who are in a sense like them, whether they're uh, residents or whether they're other tourists. So it's kind of the shared urban preferences of residents and visitors that are important here. And within London, that has taken people to places which are uh, off the beaten track as conventional tourism destinations, 
but which are very well known to Londoners. So places like Islington, uh, which is a, an upscale residential uh, area within London. There's no sense in which it's off the beaten track for a Londoner. Um, it's well known, but it's not or hasn't been in the past a terribly well known destination uh, for tourists. The same is true of uh, places like uh, Hoxton, places like London Fields, parts of the East End, uh, which have become uh, more interesting both to Londoners and visitors over the years, over recent uh, years. And that's involved going to places um, which are somewhat off the beaten track, some of them uh, slightly uh, edgy, uh, places which once would have seemed a, a sort of quite brave destination for conventional uh, tourists. But as they've been incorporated into prosperous London by Londoners, they have also been incorporated into tourism circuits for uh, visitors who share some of the characteristics of prosperous Londoners. So there is a sense in which new places are being created through an interaction uh, between residents uh, and visitors. And the distinction between tourists and residents is increasingly blurred in many cases, I think, in terms of their preferences um, and, and where they go. And it's the quality of metropolitan uh, cities, as, as Maria has mentioned, that because size matters, because they're large, because they developed from a series of uh, villages or, or neighbourhoods that grew together. Um, they have many differences within them and they are capable of generating new areas that are of interest both to residents um, and visitors. And the conviviality comes about in areas where from the point of view of residents, um, tourists who share their urban preferences, share their cultural tastes, are a positive. It's nice to see them. And from the tourist's point of view, residents who share uh, their urban preferences, share their cultural tastes, are people they want to mingle with. So there's a conviviality between uh, tourists and other tourists and between residents and tourists because they share preferences, they share cultures, they share tastes, and they do share frequently uh, membership of a, a comparatively uh, privileged uh, global uh, elite, for want of a better word, what some people have called the cosmopolitan consuming class, uh, what David Goodhart in his comparatively recent book calls anywheres, people who are at home in different cities, whether they happen to be living there or they happen to be happen to be visiting there. So it's a conviviality uh, between people with shared preferences, shared characteristics, uh, a shared class. both for these very detailed and exhaustive answers to the questions. 
It is interesting to talk of this today and try and unpick the notion of metropolitan when we have to almost rely on our memory of what metropolitan or metropolitan tourism means and our hopes for what it will mean in the future. To that extent, and this is a question for both, in this situation, when we have moved from the discourse of over-tourism to under-tourism, could you perhaps comment on sustainability and resilience and how do you think tourism can be resilient in the face of both of these adverse effects? Yeah, well, this is a very big, the big question, in fact, in this COVID era, uh, how things will evolve in post-COVID uh, um, times. Will post-COVID urban and metropolitan tourism be as in uh, 2019? Means, uh, will we go back to business as usual or will it be different? And I think it's very, very difficult to imagine how tourism will be 10 years from now in uh, 2031, let's say. Uh, surveys show that uh, uh, once pandemic issues will be solved, people will uh, start traveling again. In fact, all of us, we are dreaming to travel and this will to travel is uh, absolutely um, strong uh, now. But the tourism sector is heavily impacted. And uh, for example, we know that um, airlines will take years to uh, recover. Um, we also see that the um, metropolitan destinations adapted to this COVID situation more than other, other destinations by uh, two main approaches, um, increased digitalization and more attention to uh, the local, regional or uh, national visitors. This can bring in fact in the future good solutions to over tourism. But uh, today this is all an hypothesis. Nothing allows to say that uh, tourism in the future will be different. But we can hope in fact that uh, some good solutions were experienced during COVID and will also exist in the post-COVID era. And I can take here examples from, uh, from Paris, uh, even famous examples such as uh, Versailles. Uh, it was in the COVID context that for the first time of its history, this site, which is visited by more than 7 million visitors, well, was visited by more than 7 uh, million visitors, uh, visitors who sometimes had to wait long before being able to enter into the, uh, the Palais introduced for the first time an online reservation system. Well, this is interesting because it will probably contribute to a better balance of the visit patterns by placing the visit of Versailles at the very center of the tourist mobility to Paris. I mean that in the years to come, tourists will not uh, decide to go to Versailles if they are already in Paris, but will plan go to Versailles as a main, in fact, um, a main point, a main, uh, a main, a main reason of their visit uh, to Paris. So um, the visit of some places will be uh, planned a uh, lot in advance, and this probably will change the patterns uh, of over tourism and will help to better balance over uh, touristic situation uh, in some uh, places. Uh, so digitalization for me, which in fact uh, was extremely developed during the last, uh, the last year, uh, plays an important role. And it also play, plays a role in um, the development of over the beaten track 
um, metropolitan destinations. Um, for example, thanks to a very new, very innovative offer of online visits, um, less known and sometimes remote uh, and very difficult to reach sites are virtually visited today through new platforms such as Explore Paris. Explore Paris is a platform in which you can, uh, through which you can visit uh, off the beaten track um, sites in the Parisian metropolis. Uh, currently, uh, you can visit them uh, digitally, but uh, we can uh, imagine that this opens also new perspectives for um, real physical visits in the, uh, in the future. The other, I think, positive point to uh, link with your question on um, uh, resilience is related to the rediscovery of uh, metropolitan destinations by local uh, permanent uh, inhabitants. Because we saw how it, uh, it worked in most, uh, um, in most metropolises, and this was clearly also the case in Paris, faced to a lack of international tourists, uh, Paris stakeholders, Paris tourism stakeholders, initiated um, new, I would say, seduction strategies for their locals. And we can hope that this will encourage more positive encounters in the future between locals and visitors. There are so many new initiatives uh, in many metropolises, and most of them are um, the direct or indirect result of COVID. Um, I can also give uh, here the example I spoke before about the platform Explore Paris, but um, I can give also the example of Invisible Cities or Amsterdam Underground, uh, which are very, very interesting initiatives that offer guided tours of areas of Amsterdam uh, for the Amsterdam Underground or uh, of Edinburgh, Manchester, Glasgow, Cardiff for uh, Invisible Cities that are not usually visited by tourists. So it, it goes far beyond the model of the greeters that exist uh, till the uh, 1990s. Um, and it goes far beyond because it offers today, today a huge diversity of um, new sites, new places, which are uh, most of them of the beaten tracks. And it also brings new, um, a new interface between the local uh, communities, the local inhabitants and the tourists. For example, the guides of uh, Amsterdam underground are mostly recovering drug addicts and former homeless people who seek to make a living uh, by sharing their stories. In Paris, in the um, northern districts of Paris, uh, there are also extremely interesting visits which are done by uh, recent uh, immigrants who present, in fact, their everyday, um, everyday um, uh, life uh, places. And I think that this could be a digitalization and the diversification of uh, um, visitors could be uh, a good response for future uh, resilience. I'll continue because I, uh, I, I agree with um, what Maria has been saying, so I won't uh, I won't repeat that, but maybe add one or two things. I mean, the first thing we always have to remind ourselves is that it's impossible to predict what the long-term effects of the pandemic is going to be. If, if we go back 
to the crash of 2008. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about what that would uh, mean in the longer term. I don't think anyone suggested it would mean Donald Trump would be president of the USA or that Britain would leave the EU. And yet I think that those are both clearly consequent uh, on, on the crash. So it's quite hard to uh, make confident predictions on what the longer term results of uh, the pandemic will be. It's conceivable in terms of sustainability that there will be more serious attention play, paid to climate change, uh, in which case, uh, absent any some absent any new miracle technology, you know, someone inventing cold fusion overnight, um, that will imply uh, less travel and less tourism, um, and that obviously uh, has implications. Uh, for the metropolis, uh, particularly because I think it's almost certain that we will have less business tourism than we've been uh, than we've been used to. It may be the same with leisure tourism, and as Maria says, the international tourism may fall, um, and there may be uh, more domestic tourism. In in terms of the creating new tourism areas or getting off the beaten track. I mean, one of the things that I've been um, interested in is the way in which uh, suburbs become tourism uh, destinations. And we might expect to see uh, suburbs being more attractive to visitors as they are becoming uh, more attractive to residents, certainly in London. Uh, because you can escape some crowding, perhaps you can enjoy green space as well as the uh, the urban experience. So, so I think that those are uh, ways in which we we should be thinking about how things are uh, possibly going to going to change. It's also worth, I think, thinking about the the possibility of a more hybrid tourism which incorporates um, uh, both physical visits to places and virtual visits to places. Maybe the, the tourism experience will be, will be a mixture of the two. Um, and that kind of reminds us that, that there are fewer and fewer parts of the city which are now truly off the beaten track because it is so easy to visit so much of the city virtually. And that makes me wonder about what will happen in the future uh, about image rights. Um, so if you want to visit a part of Paris or a part of London virtually and explore the streets and see the places, um, is it possible to monetize that for the area, for the people in the area and so on? So there's a, there's a whole lot of uh, questions that I think uh, arise here, but the uh, the resilience that comes from increased domestic tourism is possibly offset uh, by a drop in international tourism, and I think the uh, the sustainability that might come from fewer 
physical visits and more virtual visits will also raise uh, a number of uh, interesting questions too. Robert, you mentioned there about monetizing tourism. Marie, you've spoken a lot about, about this as well. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about gentrification and to what extent anyway we can burden tourism or metropolitan tourism as a gentrifying agent in all this? Hmm. Well, this is a very uh, important, but also a very complicated question. It's difficult to respond with a short answer, but I will try. Uh, I think there is a very um, large range of situations. Tourism can arrive in an area when there is a vacuum, when a formal activity has already declined. This was, for example, the case in uh, Le Marais in Paris. Tourism started to develop when the declined uh, industrial and crafts activities could not continue to exist in the center of Paris because it was difficult to imagine a rundown area in the very center of Paris, given also the current real estate and land uh, prices. But in Le Marais, gentrification was first residential. So it started as a residential um, um, gentrification and then when in fact Le Marais was already heritageized, was already restored, uh, became a very um, fancy uh, urban area, then tourism came. But tourism now functions as a super gentrifier. It was not a gentrifier in the beginning, but now, yes. And in fact, what we can observe uh, in um, Le Marais, but also in other areas, in other metropolises, is that because, in fact, of the phenomenon of the tourism-related platforms, tourism uh, functions as a super gentrifier that chases away the first gentrifiers of the 1970s, 1980s. So uh, yes, today tourism is a gentrifier. Clearly, it's not the only one. And uh, uh, it does not function as a gentrifier the same, uh, with the same way or through the evolution of uh, an urban uh, neighborhood. But yes, today, uh, is, even if it is not the only one, uh, I think is one of the most important uh, factors of gentrification. I, I think uh, in, in, in London, um, certainly gentrification would have happened in the absence of tourism. And we, we have to bear in mind that over 25 years or so, the population of London increased by 2 million. Um, and that's what has been a key point in driving uh, the adaptation of housing stock, the gentrification of housing stock, real estate speculation, uh, because this was a completely unplanned uh, and rapid population uh, increase. So tourism has not been a driver of gentrification, but it's been synergistic with uh, gentrification. Tourism, a certain element of tourism uh, has worked very well uh, as part of the process of, of gentrification. And in part, uh, that is because the uh, gentrifiers and a particular section of tourists are the same class. They're the same people um, at home 
uh, and away. I spoke earlier uh, about the cosmopolitan consuming class, which is one term. I spoke about anywheres, which is another term. A third term is the global gentrifying class. It's the same uh, social fragment that we're talking about um, in all cases. And that, that has driven uh, gentrification um, in London, in, in Paris. It's also driven gentrification uh, across uh, cities. So it's, it's notable that um, in London, as East London became gentrified and more fashionable north of the river, uh, people started moving uh, south of the river to uh, southeast London, um, New Cross, Peckham, Deptford, areas like that. As those areas became gentrified, then mobile people started moving to other cities like Berlin. Um, so you've seen a process of gentrification, which is about the uh, a mobile, comparatively prosperous class of people who can travel to and live in uh, many, many different cities. So tourism is enmeshed in that, uh, but it's not the, the main driver of that. It's part of a, a complex uh, series. Uh, of, of forces. Eight to Bowchurch. Continuing on with the topic of the built environment, the arguably perennial discussion of urban versus rural and the argument that suggests that certain issues simply fall easier on the strong backs of an urban as opposed to rural environment. In recent times, we witnessed radical shifts in questioning problematic heritage or reproduction of one type of heritage. Maria, you have written widely on architecture and heritage, and I was wondering if you could elaborate how does this play out in a metropolitan context in particular? What is it about the layered metropolitan environment that affects this and does it even? Mm. Yeah, right. Yeah, metropolitan tourism, in fact, implies uh, the diversification also of the types of uh, heritage that are visited. We are not speaking, of course, only about monumental heritage. And um, uh, there is a striking contrast between, on the one hand, the monumental, very highly visible and over-touristified um, often uh, heritage of the central areas, uh, and on the other hand, the cultural heritage of the urban fringes that uh, incorporate today different things, former medieval villages, industrial areas, factory buildings, storage areas and warehouses, um, transport infrastructure, airports, canals, tenements, social housing, uh, early 20th century garden cities, modern and contemporary residential architecture, et cetera, et cetera. This is just to say that uh, this aggregation of heterogeneous urban forms and styles represents a different kind of uh, heritage. Uh, not only for the, uh, by its architecture, but also uh, socially, uh, since many of those areas have been the settling ground of newcomer populations uh, arriving from uh, former colonies uh, in Paris and London, 
or from the countryside or from recent immigration. And in fact, all those areas possess also a very important intangible uh, heritage that reflect the, uh, the social and cultural mix of their inhabitants uh, and which can be built around toponymy, uh, ceremonies, arts and crafts, etc. So which is, I think, important to say here is that when we speak about this metropolitan tourism, when we speak about over the beaten tracks of tourism, we also speak about a totally different type of urban heritage. And indeed, the extension of the visit perimeter from the central areas to the fringe uh, or uh, of the, uh, the fringes of the urban metropolises may contribute a lot to the recognition of a new emerging uh, urban heritage. I think this uh, is, is something very, very important to underline speaking about metropolitan tourism and the impact of metropolitan tourism to uh, heritageization. Drawing this to a close then, I wanted to end here with a, a question for both of you about research methods and was wondering if you could comment on to what extent we might draw on new or existing research methods to, to capture what it is we've been discussing today. In some ways, uh, Adam, I think uh, tourism in, in cities would, would benefit by making use of the, the most traditional research methods. I mean, the, the sad truth is that we know very little um, about tourism in cities because the, uh, the quality and quantity of data that is collected um, is so poor. So we don't know really how uh, how we don't even know uh, with any certainty how many visitors uh, we get to the city. We know even with even less certainty where they go. Uh, we have some idea possibly uh, about where they stay, uh, but given that they're often staying in private homes with friends or, or family or with Airbnb or what have you, we don't know a great deal um, uh, about that. So the, the, the kind of basic uh, uh, information which would be helpful in understanding um, what people are doing in, in, in cities is, is, is not there really. And I think, I mean, I, I've used uh, surveys, I've used qualitative research methods, interviews primarily. I've done I've had people do some mental mapping, which is quite a, a productive way of helping uh, understand how uh, visitors perceive the places they are. And we did uh, uh, some visitor tracking to find out what people actually did and, and doing that and combining it with um, interviews afterwards is actually really quite productive in terms of helping helping elicit from people what it is uh, they've, uh, they've done, why they did it and, and so on. It, it, remi it reminds them uh, of where they've been and why. So, you know, there are a number of things that uh, have been done and there is, is clearly a great deal of scope uh, to, to do, do more, I think. And what we need, I, I would have thought, is to find ways of using the vast amount of data uh, that's now out there from mobile phone data, social media data, online uh, data of one source or another to try and 
use that to assemble some pictures of where people are going, what they're doing, how many of them uh, there are. Um, and then we'll, we'll start to get some sense of what the, the revealed preferences of people are, what it is actually um, they, uh, they, they, they want to do. So I think there is, uh, there, there is a scope uh, for learning a lot more uh, about how people, how visitors use cities and how they interact with cities and how they interact with other people. And we've been trying to understand that to date almost entirely um, through qualitative methods, which are very revealing and provide some uh, you know, rich understanding, but don't actually give us uh, any uh, understanding of scale or details of place or behavior in the sense of what follows after what and, and so on. And I think if, unless we can begin to tackle that problem, uh, then we're all always going to be struggling with a very uh, partial uh, view of, of what tourists are doing in cities, what they like about cities, who they interact with in cities and how they perceive their experience. Maria? Yes, uh, well, it's, it's very difficult to respond to this question in general methodology, depending on the um, more specific issue and or problem. Uh, as a researcher, personally, I privilege uh, in general qualitative methodologies. And um, I found, for example, that uh, the, the Delphi comparatist uh, approach we experimented to analyze the adaptation of uh, tourism to COVID in London and Paris is an interesting approach. If we seek to analyze the tourism and urban metropolitan stakeholders strategies, as far as it concerns uh, tourism visitation patterns, I also privilege qualitative methodologies, interviews, observation, um, mental maps, uh, which really allows to understand uh, what are the uh, imaginaries, the tourist imaginaries about uh, Metropolises, and this is something that uh, interests me a lot. Um, big data can also offer very interesting perspectives for knowing the visitation patterns of big numbers of uh, visitors. Um, colleagues at uh, um, IREST, our um, research laboratory in uh, Paris and Pantheon Sorbonne, have, for example, developed very interesting algorithms uh, allowing to follow uh, visitors through image posting on social uh, media, for example. They also work on uh, more um, um, quantitative analysis of online comments on social media platforms. Uh, and these are, I think, methodologies which are absolutely um, uh, important to develop further because as Robert said uh, in, uh, in the beginning of his answer, we are really lacking of um, uh, we have to deal with very, very poor uh, data. I should say we've come to the end of our questions, but that will not be true. You've given us so much to think about and talk about. For now, though, thank you both very much for joining us for this inaugural SMET podcast episode. This has been not only informative, but provided a network with a lot of material to keep interrogating the notion of metropolitan its unique qualities and extents. Thank you for your time and sharing your expertise. Thank you. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Many thanks. 
And thank you as well to our listeners. And we look forward to welcoming you to our next podcast very soon.